Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work, our weekly podcast about work. You know what we've never talked about? What? Figure one. Oh, our favorite app. What it? App, it's I guess. It's an app. Yeah. It's an app. So uh, get out your phones right now uh, while you're standing waiting for your transit or whatever. Figure one is, the way it was explained to me, it's Instagram for doctors. Yeah. And it's every medical malady that you could think of anonymously, like anonymous pictures of patients and doctors like float them to each other to see like, what do you think this is? Yeah. What could this rash be? It's an app for consultations. Yeah. Or just like, look at this cool thing that I saw. You discovered it first. I learned about it from, I think if I remember correctly, I learned- You were in a room, like you were in a writer's room. I was in a writer's room, but it was not, but we learned about it from another writer's room full of, that they were doing a hospital show. So they had it to find right. cool medical shit that to they write could, episodes about. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, sent it to you and in short order to our friend Dylan. Right. Because I've tried to share it with many people. No. But the only two who are interested in playing with me are yes. the two of you. You should have actually disclaimered when you told everybody to go look up figure one because you have to be the kind of people like Duanna, Dylan, and me. Because we are those people who love watching fucking pimples busting, tumors being extracted, well, that like I think toes is- coming out, like toes hanging by a piece of skin. Yes, it can't look at it. Like every time you send me a figure one, I run up to him and I'll be like, you have to see this. And he runs away from me. Yeah. No, I, I married a person like that also. Uh, but yeah, the Dr. Pimple Popper prevalence. Like, where's her show, by the way? I assume she's getting like a three-picture deal pretty soon. Hi, Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, But the people who like that stuff, it's similar. Uh, My favorite, favorite figure one picture that I've ever seen is really gross. I want to give you time to just like press the 15 button a couple of times if you don't want to know if you are not in a place where you want to be horrified. But if you are, There was a picture of, I guess, like a hand had been burned or injured so badly. Uh, It was the person's right hand. And it wasn't going to be able to heal, right? Because how do you heal that? Like if you leave it to the air, it's going to get dry and terrible. And if you wrap it in bandages, it was all going to adhere and be terrible. Do you know what they did? Well, you know because I should. Right. They cut a flap in the person's stomach. And put the hand underneath with little like finger holes for it to come out. They made a glove out of the stomach, sewed the person's hand to their stomach until the skin regenerated underneath and then took it back out. Oh, it's, but that's the thing. It's so fucking gross and yet fascinating. Like that's why we love this shit. And it's also like, let's be honest, it's also super fucking innovative. That's amazing to do that. It's very impressive. 
And the reason why we're talking about figure one is because just before we started play on this podcast, we were talking about what we're doing next after recording the podcast. And what we're doing next is we're meeting up with Kathleen to go see a movie. We'll get to that in a minute. But Kathleen will be on crutches because Kathleen has torn her Achilles. Yes. And we think. And we were thinking about like what it means to tear your Achilles and what that would feel like and that literally the back of your foot snaps off. Yeah, you're, you're, I, I, I uh. don't, I think Kathleen is going to be fine, everybody. She loves your well wishes. She's going to be fine. Uh, but yeah, it was notable because when we were talking about it, it was one of the only times I've ever seen you like flinch from like a physical gross out. Yes. And that's because well, number one, as you know, I have a high tolerance for physical gross out. Like I love gross shit, but it's because I've actually felt the almost stretch that like right before snap in that area. Exactly. And so when you say Achilles, everybody kind of knows everybody, you can visualize it. It's that elastic band right around the foot. And so that, that word elastic too is also so visceral. Like when it snaps, you know, you can see something snapping and to imagine it attached to your foot. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, Kathleen, we have lots of sympathy, but we are also two assholes who love gross shit, which is why we're talking about your um, your accident in this way. Maybe we'll get like special VIP treatment at the movie. Like, do you think they have like escorting into your seat ushers for, for Achilles? Yeah. Because yeah. cr- she's going to be in a boot and crutches. Yeah. Um, anyway, so follow her on Instagram to get all the goods about the, uh, about the, the leg. It's going to be three to six months. She's going to be great. She's, She's going to be, be fine. She doesn't need surgery. Um, anyway, yes, we are all meeting up. We had decided like a week ago that tonight we are seeing the almost midnight showing. It's going to be 11 PM, the almost midnight showing of girls trip, which we've been excited and waiting for, for a long time. For a long time. I think the first trailer came out around, like, I want to say Christmas. It's been a long time. And we debated whether or not to talk about it on the show today or wait till after the box office, which, uh, as you were saying, is projected to be possibly really, really great. Yeah. They're saying that it could open. um, I mean, the conservative projections are like $25 which is great because that was its budget. So that's always great. Yeah. If you make back your budget, you are if if it's a binary yes no success situation, yeah. if you make back your budget, you are a success. That's right. I mean, listen, we're not saying that like this movie is going to fucking come out of the gate and do Avengers money. It's never it never was that. First of all, this is an R-rated movie. So, uh just to let everybody else know, for those of you who are unfamiliar, when you're coming out with an R movie, automatically you're not going to get the kiddies, you're not going to get that Disney money. Um, yeah, there's not franchise no. like, money to be had in like uh, merchandising right. and whatnot. It's not George Lucas. No, here. but they're saying it's 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 on track to do very well or they're hoping it's going to do very well. And if it's going to make back its budget in its first weekend, um, it will continue to build word of mouth. And so you and I were talking about Word of mouth and hype in certain localized segments versus hype and just overall mainstream bonanza popularity. And we wanted to sort of discuss that in relation to this particular movie, which is a comedy, a raunchy comedy with four women in the main roles written and directed 
by black Americans um, and whether or not, and I hate to use this word, I don't know, you tell me if it's inappropriate, whether or not we can call it crossover. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me about your uh, discomfort with the word crossover. Well, I don't want to imply that when a project like this crosses over, it is a marker of it's a success. Right. Right? I, that is, I, to me, I would be insulted. Um, I, I, I think maybe it would be insulting. So I, I don't want to characterize it like that. But there is a robust, uh, there is a robust black movie industry. There is a huge black movie yeah. industry. And I think to your point, we don't always know about it because it doesn't reach the mainstream media, right? It's, it doesn't, we don't always hear about, oh, hey, think about all these movies that do kind of incredible box office. Or if we do hear about them, it's often a bit of a, well, you know what it is. It's always in reference to Tyler Perry, right? That's right. For years, the mainstream media only reported on- Medea. Uh, yes, yeah. exactly. So- uh, so I understand what you're saying from that perspective in terms of, yeah, is it is it a crossover success? Why do we have to qualify it? Why That's is right. it just a success? That's right. And to go back to, you know, that robust black movie industry, it's not just Medea. It's the Best Man series. It's the Think Like a Man movies. All of those have done very, very big business, except that they don't get the attention that quote, mainstream coverage that is afforded other movies. So I don't want to qualify or take away from the accomplishment and the significance of it, but Girls Trip does feel different. It absolutely does. And it is, uh, it's written by Kenya Barris, uh, blackish Kenya Barris, and Tracy Oliver, uh, who is a writer who also wrote on Barbershop and Survivor's Remorse which is not a show that I know that I maybe should know, uh, and was an actress in some of the early days of The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girls. Shout out to Issa Rae. These are people who are super experienced and who have made things that you know and love. Uh, so by all accounts, it's going to be great. And, you know, what's interesting is not, oh, is it going to be great or is it going to get you know, who's going to go see it. It's the way that it's being marketed, right? Uh, the clip that everybody watched this weekend that I know you watched, you probably even played it for your mother this weekend, uh, is the clip uh, with Tiffany Haddish on Jimmy Kimmel, right? Yeah. I was being a bit rhetorical there, but would you actually play that clip for your mother? I don't know if I would play, if my mother spoke English and knew all the swear words and whatnot, but I played it for Yasik. I couldn't wait to play it for Yasik. I couldn't wait to send it to everybody at work. Yeah, of course, because it's such great. I said uh, the first time I watched it, it's such perfect timing uh, because she sort of sets up her whole story. It's hilarious. Again, pause the podcast and go and watch this clip if you haven't watched it. It is seven minutes and 19 seconds that is going to make your day. Uh, but she sets it up and you can see where it's going. It's getting funnier and funnier. She doesn't feel rehearsed. She's clearly just telling a story because she's a funny person. And then at the end of the very last part of the story, there are two jokes in a row. They're totally different jokes. Bam, bam. Um, but they complement one another. 
Uh, the joke about the way that rich men cross their legs yes. so there's room for their balls. Yes. Uh, and then the final joke, yes. which I will not give away. And I thought that's a master comedian. Like that's a master comedian working. And we often get to watch these really like intellectual documentaries about oh, Chris Rock or Louis C.K. or whomever, like, working their craft. And I thought, we should be seeing a documentary or an in-depth sort of feature about this woman and how she works. And for the first time, as you pointed out, there was a Vanity Fair article that sort of approaches that, a profile. Well, yeah, it approaches that profile by calling her essentially the funniest woman alive. And person alive. Let me go Andy Murray on yeah, your ass. The thanks, funniest sorry. person alive right now. Um, and, you know, she she is now being considered the breakout star of Girls Trip. All the reviews, the reviews, by the way, are for the most part solid, very, very receptive. And in most of the reviews, they say that the standout of Girls Trip is Tiffany Haddish. So she's having a moment right now. And she's 37. Now, I'm not saying 37 is old, but I want to talk about what she was doing up to this point to get to 37. I mean, she just didn't start in the business yesterday. She has been a stand-up. She has been working the circuit. And yet, only now is she hitting. Compare that to, let's say, Amy Schumer. Yeah, sure. Amy Schumer is almost the same age, I think, and has already been credited with resurrecting comedy several times over by now, right? There's been like lauding and then backlash and then frontlash and, you know, a whole resurgence and the whole thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have referred to this, this is fascinating to me on lots of levels. Uh, one is that, as you said, there are a lot of black women who are having kind of a huge career resurgence or boost right now, uh, a little bit later in their, a little bit later in their careers, right? We're not talking about, you know, Queen Latifah and Jada Pinkett Smith have been around for a minute. Thank you for being here. But, you know, but there are more than a few women who are now household names who are not breaking out when they're 23 and 24, right? Who are waiting until well into their 30s. Yep. And it's really interesting because that's that's a long time to hang on. You mentioned the the Girls Trip co-star, uh, Regina Hall. Yep. Uh, who again has been acting, has been working. Uh, Allie McBeal showed up on her resume. Yeah. And Law and Order, but Law and Order is on everybody's resume ever. Yeah. Um, you know, there are there are quite a few, though. Like, we were talking about uh, Taraji P. Henson. Taraji is 47. Yeah. 46 or 47. And listen, uh, Hustle and Flow, I get it. But after, but after Hustle and Flow, there was some time. She did Benjamin Button. She was nominated for an Oscar for that. But when you're talking about Taraji as a lead, that's really only been the last three years. Absolutely. Or like, you know, the one that makes me laugh all the time is that in the past couple of years, people decided that Gabrielle Union was a thing. Um, Gabrielle Union is 44 years of age. That's right. She has been here for you since 10 Things I Hate About You, and she yep. played Chastity, if you recall. Yep. Uh, but And bring it on? Yeah, I think, I think 10 Things I Hate About You is first. Okay. I believe. Uh, they're very close. But it's similar era. Yeah, and very similar And then it era. was, you know, not hitting. And 
By hitting, of course, though, we mean, and here we are again, right? Are you hitting if you are, is it only hitting if you're in the mainstream media? Uh, If you're in the, like, let's just go ahead and say it, like the white media? Yeah. Does it only count when it's, yeah, the mainstream, the Vanity Fair, the Vogues, those are the people who notice you? You know, I remember uh, years and years ago at, uh, at when I was working early, early days uh, on an entertainment show, and it was uh, a different entertainment landscape than, than it is now. Uh, but I was talking about how excited I was to interview Aisha Tyler, how sure I was that with her book and she'd had an arc on Friends and... Uh, she was doing a show that she was going to be the next breakout. And I remember people laughing at me, like laughing that this was something that I wanted to spend time on, uh, that it's a segmented kind of interest, or it's supposed to be a kind of segmented interest. She's another person who is, uh, Aisha Tyler is well into her forties, if I, if I remember correctly. And who now is sort of like, oh, she's, you know, the kind of establishment that shows up on the talk. Uh, but there wasn't an interest in seeing people develop, in seeing black women develop in a way uh, into performers, into actors, to see who they were going to be, uh, even as recently as 10, 15 years ago, which is kind of bananas, you know? Well, you know, and to go back to Taraji, that's a great example of that. Hustle and Flow went to the Oscars. Hustle and Flow was a player at the Oscars. Taraji was in that film. Uh, Her next major film that showed up at the Oscars was Benjamin Button. And yet, you put a white actor in a movie like that that shows up at the Oscars, and suddenly for the next two years, they're booked back to back to back to back. Well, you know, people love to talk about Viola Davis in doubt. They love to say like, oh, she was great, and she was so strong, and blah, blah, blah. But at the time... At the time, people were still like, anyway, Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman and, oh, this other woman is also excellent. Like, Viola Davis did not become household name Viola Davis until the help. Right. You were going to say something else. Well, I was going to say, yes, until the help, but then even after the nomination for the help and she went on to not get the Oscar for the help. Yes. It wasn't exactly hitting in that way until Shonda created a show for her. Absolutely. And then Shonda creates a show for her. The show, she's amazing in the show. She is the lead. So she's number one in the call sheet, is is to borrow an expression that you you use. That's right. And then she's number one in the call sheet. And then we see the Oscar come. Yeah. And I'm going to be real, real. Viola Davis is better than that show is. Uh, Viola Davis, who is 51 years of age, by the way. Uh, and to give real credit where credit is due, Shonda Rhimes uh, is the executive producer, but not the creator of of How to Get Away with Murder, if we're getting really tech about the whole thing. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting thing that these are women of a certain age who are only now coming into their own. Uh, and I was talking to you about what I call the John Hamm factor. Uh, the John Hamm factor is a little sort of I don't know, a little Mobius strip of a mental game that I jump around in. When actors are, you know the phrase out of work actor is one of our favorites, right? Our favorites, anybody's favorite, society's favorite. Oh, he's an out of work actor. Like you may as well say whatever, right? There are a million jokes. 
And John Hamm was, could not get arrested as an actor. He was, uh, this is my favorite thing, he played like a three-line Lorelai Gilmore love interest mm-hmm. in Gilmore Girls at one point. Uh, and then he he landed Mad Men in, was it, two, what year did Mad Men begin? 2010? No, before. Seven or eight? Sure. So John Hamm is an out-of-work actor, basically. He's getting three lines opposite Lorelai Gilmore circa 2003. You're like, dude, wow. Uh, And then gets Mad Men, which premieres in 2007, when, you know, he's already in his late 30s. Cough, cough, by the way, because really? Late 30s? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so there's always that thing of like, yeah, maybe you should give up acting. Maybe you should give up pursuing such a crazy bananas thing. But what if you're John Hamm? What if you suddenly, when you hit, you hit so big? What if it's what it was worth waiting for? Which in his case, it was, right? Uh, And for these women, for these women that we're so excited to see in Girls Trip, there's kind of an interesting comparison because it's like, okay, now you're here. Now you are, to your use your phrase, beginning to hit. What are you going to do? Where is this going to go? What's it going to look like? And hit as an asterisk, right? Because as we have been trying to point out, like, you know, they've hit in the black community and, you know, it's about that hit in the mainstream where they're like getting profiled in Variety and Vanity Fair and Hollywood Reporter. This is what's happening to Tiffany Haddish right now. So, I go back to Viola and she's always been about leadership and who came before and what you can do to pave the way. So for somebody like, let's say six months ago, the talk, the talk was around Janelle Monet. Mm-hmm. After her amazing two performances in Moonlight and Hidden Figures, everybody was like, Janelle Monet, wow, she really made an impression. What happens next? Does Janelle Monet have to now wait? Like the Violas and the and the Tarajis and the Tiffany's and the Regina Halls, ten years, or are the Reginas and the Tiffany's and the Tarajis and the Violas now their influence going to shrink the time that you know people like Janelle have to wait? Well, and Janelle Monet is a bit of an exception too because she had a thriving music career before she was ever an actress, right? So she is only 31 and has already had several albums. Uh, She has achieved, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest mark of success. She sung a song on Sesame Street. I feel like (laughs) as soon as you do like a song with the Muppets, I'm like, okay, you are legit. Uh, But she had, you know, I was listening to something today that was like, you need to have enough side hustles going on to, you know, to keep you going in your main hustle. Like she had some side hustles going on. Uh, for some time. But what's interesting about the Janelle Monet example is that she's young. Yeah. My thought was one of the other reasons that we don't know these women is because there's so little call for black actresses in their teens, black actresses in their 20s. Uh, they don't get cast in a lot of teen movies, in a lot of, you know, slasher movies where you come up and and train yourself to learn what a mark is and that kind of thing in a lot of, uh, you know, romances. And that's why I was so excited about Amanda Stenberg in Everything, Everything, because she was 
11 years old when she played Rue in uh, Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. Yeah. Uh, and now is more or less 17 playing 17 in that movie. So will it be, to your question, different again for her? Does it get shrunk even further because she's already proved that she is a leading woman uh, before the age of 20? Is it a game changer? Is it a game changer? And then to go back to the women who, for lack of a better word, experienced the delay, like the Tiffany Haddishes and like Taraji, specifically with Tiffany, if you are 37, you've been hustling for this long, yep. um, and this is your moment, it's different if you're a John Hamm um, as opposed to if you're a Tiffany Haddish oh, through yes. biology. Of course. Well, through, God, let's pick the layers. You mean because he gets sexier as he gets older? Number one, so many layers. You're totally right. And the layer I'm going to is, I'll get to it in a minute, but you're right. The layers of, yes, we collectively, traditionally, and this is an overall sort of generalization, men get sexier and can work and be considered hot and viable well into their 40s and 50s, whereas women, we talked about that expiration date. So that's one layer. And just to, to postscript that, you know, I would even say, like, let's pity the good-looking young men, uh, you know, feel feel much pity for the, for the Brad Pitts and Matt Damons and so forth of the world. But I think even they would say that the roles get more interesting as they get older when they're not merely playing uh, attractive hunks of beef, right? That's right. So pity them. So that's professional opportunity. Yeah. But then there's personal opportunity. Mm -hmm. And with personal opportunity, what I'm talking about with the biology is personal choices, life choices. So you're someone like Tiffany Haddish and you're 37 years old. Um, I mean, I haven't delved deep into her personal life, but let's say she's single and she isn't a parent yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. You're 37. Yeah. And your career is so hot right now. The consideration that somebody who's in the position of Tiffany Haddish is a 37-year-old woman, you're like, oh my God, my agent, the phone's ringing off the hook. Everybody's like, you know, I'm seeing more scripts now. What about family planning? I think the answer there is, I, you know, I think you would, to to quote uh, a book that I've quoted on this podcast before, I think you would ride the horse in the direction it's going. I think you would keep things going the way they were going because it the iron may never strike again, right? Uh, but it's really interesting because who's, you know, we're saying all this like, oh, it's hot, oh, it's happening, and then we listed all these names and... Are people writing roles for all of these women or are all these amazing women sort of in competition for the few roles that there are? That's right. How many amazing actresses auditioned for Hidden Figures and didn't get it? Because, you know, I'm sure they were great, but because you can only cast three. Who else is trying to get in there and how, how big or small is the funnel is the question. That's right. And so when they're already still, even though... It's been a wonderful year so far of progress, as we have established. We have a long way to go, so the funnel is still relatively narrow. There's still a bottleneck. I mean, what you, that's what you were describing. So let's say you have a handful of actresses who are equally talented, who are amazing in their own ways, but the roles still aren't there yet. A handful that we know of. That we know of. Another, you know, uh, I don't know, like a double armful of… Yes. 
you know, incredibly talented actresses who are just below the surface, who are just not yep. getting the role yet. And you almost did and you came close and they're wondering if they should give up and like get their real estate license. Yeah. And yeah, what happens when you, when you push? Where, you know, where are the roles? Or do they do what more and more people are doing and going, I guess I'm going to write it for myself. Yeah. I guess I'm going to create the role that I need to see for myself. Or you're 37, Tiffany Haddish, and we've just talked about the bottleneck, and you're like, oh, it's happening for me now. Now I've got to put off some of the things I wanted to do. Be a mother. Do this and that. Um, because I, I guess so. what if or- I get pregnant and I lose that one rule that, you know, only a handful and more, of, and there was only that one rule? I guess. Or you say, life's not going that way. I'm not doing that. That was the… That was the- you know, those were the thoughts of somebody who was planning a life that didn't look like this. And now that my life looks like this, I'm planning a different life. I'm thinking about this, of course, because one of the big stories this week has been Mindy Kaling's pregnancy. How old is Mindy Kaling? Mindy Kaling is uh, almost 38, if not 38. Mindy Kaling is 38 years old. Okay. So Mindy Kaling's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this was a big gossip ripple. This is a big gossip ripple. I think part of the big gossip ripple was because we don't know the father, if there is a father. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, one assumes there's a father unless there are things about biology I don't right. know about. <laughs> so people want to know, uh, like Kathleen wrote a hilarious piece hoping that Chris Pine is the father. Right. And I think that's probably just a hope. But, you know, why not? And we should mention Mindy Kaling herself at post time has not confirmed that she is pregnant, but essentially she has not denied that she is pregnant. And that was the big story. She's pregnant. And how did, how did, uh, it was E! News that broke the story. That's right. And they said multiple sources tell E! News uh, that the Wrinkle in Time actress is currently pregnant with her first child. So multiple sources, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty straightforward and clear. Uh, and as you say, she hasn't come out and denied it. She hasn't made some joke or pithy comment about it. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's, Mindy Kaling is pretty media savvy and pretty aware. And I I would say that she knew that this was going to be announced. Does that make sense to you? I would agree with that simply because E! News, of course, is under the umbrella of NBC Universal. And Mindy has a development deal with NBC. So I like to always draw those lines that E! got this exclusive on their entertainment reporting side, that it's all connected to NBC. Um, And we actually haven't really talked that much yet on Show Your Work about work and family planning and work and a woman's work and pregnancy. And to me, you... You were the one who brought this up because you noted that in the E-exclusive reporting on Mindy's pregnancy, they say… Well, yeah. It, uh, you know, it really stuck with me. I mean, look, this if you've given me anything, you have given me a critical eye towards a press release. Uh, it's a skill that everybody should have. Uh, speaking of children, cultivate this in your babies. <laughs> um, but… Here was what, you know, when you talk about uh, so E! News being a subsidiary of NBC Universal and so forth, uh, that's interesting because of how it read. Uh, it says, uh, an insider explained that the future arrival for the 38-year-old actress was, quote, 
an unexpected surprise, unquote. There are only three words quoted, and one of them is a, uh, what's that, an, like a part of speech, like a grammar participle. Uh, <laughs> and then the next line is what really got me. That So far, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, I don't know how old January Jones was when she was pregnant, but uh, in terms of a single woman having a baby, it could be pretty standard so far. Then it reads but that there will not be any changes made to production schedules for her upcoming projects. Pardon me? This is where it gets tricky, right? Because, of course, uh, find me any, any, any announcement from a man who's about to be a father where it says anything about his production schedules. No, of course it doesn't. Obviously, we get that. Uh, But... This was my indication that I felt like this was an announcement made by somebody that she works with. Uh, Again, not without her permission, not without her concern, but this feels like Mindy Kaling announced this to uh, possibly the the Mindy Project production team. They are finishing product, well, they're in the midst of production for season six as we speak, which will be the final season released on Hulu later this year. Uh, And it felt like, that's your first concern? She's pregnant, but there will be no production changes to her projects? That really stuck with me in a way that was uncomfortable, to say the least. Well, if we want to cycle back to what we were talking about five minutes ago and being 37 and you're Tiffany Haddish and the difference between you and John Hamm is that production schedule, right? As you said, this doesn't come when a man who's famous announces with his partner that, you know, he's going to be a father again or for the first time, that detail doesn't show up. The detail shows up because Mindy Kaling is a woman. It affects the production schedule in many ways on many layers. Yeah. And, you know, and to me, I I was talking with somebody who was, took a bit of exception to the, again, three-word quote. Guys, when's the last time you heard a three-word quote? Uh, who took exception to the three-word quote, an unexpected surprise, like why do you have to specify that? And are you separating yourself from people who maybe planned it or whatever? And I felt like I think maybe you have to say that so that it's not implied that you are playing fast and loose with the contracts that you have, that you're playing fast and loose with the deals that you have signed, agreeing to show up and produce slash promote slash appear in all the projects that you have lined up. To your point, Mindy Kaling's a big deal. She got a full schedule. Well, it was in May that it was announced that NBC and Mindy had come to an agreement. NBC, according to Deadline, has given a series order to the single camera pilot from the Mindy Project creator, uh, Kaling and Charlie Grandy. It's called Champions. So that was around the upfronts, right? May? Yeah, yeah. That's okay, right. so at the upfronts, which is, of course, again, we've talked about it, when the networks announced their new projects, that was made headlines. I remember reading about it then. So, oh, uh, the Mindy project is not going forward, but look, Mindy has new work lined up. This is what's going to replace her time on her schedule from the Mindy project, Champions. So she's got this going on. Now, two months later, is it a little bit of a wrench? Well, you know... I hope not. So, you know, as you point out, like, she's a busy person, Mindy Kaling. She has a lot going on, a lot of things coming up uh, after the Mindy Project finishes. 
But she's not, even though she's busy, you don't think of her as being so high profile that she can organize entire companies, entire generations around her schedule. Things cannot pause for her for a short period of time, uh, which is kind of ironic, right? Because you think, oh, you're a star, you're this or that. And yet she doesn't give you that impression, right? No. I. No, you're right. I mean, she's not one of those, she's not a Jennifer Lawrence where they can put a movie on hold, for example, to wait for Jennifer Lawrence to become available. Right, exactly. Because the return, to follow up what you were talking about on the box office and earning back your money, the reason you can wait on Jennifer Lawrence is because she is technically worth it, right? Last week we were talking about the worth of actors, and you can't really prove it. But if you're Jennifer Lawrence, your movies make a lot, a lot of money. That's as close as it comes to being able to prove it. Somebody like that is worth it. Uh, you know, Meryl Streep is liable to get your project Oscar buzz. Mindy Kaling is very successful. She works all the time, but she doesn't have that same guarantee. So that's where a lot of that power ceases to be. And when you say that same guarantee, if we're talking apples to apples or close enough apples to apples, then she's also not Shonda. She's not Shonda. That's right? right. Yeah. So Shonda she's a showrunner. Yes. That's right. She's a TV writer as Shonda was. And then finally Shonda made it with Grey's Anatomy. And now Shonda is at the point where she has an idea, uh, well, I don't know how it works exactly, but let's say, you know, after one hit show and the other, she goes and she has three ideas and the network's like, yeah, I like this idea. And then she can literally go ahead and start developing it. Mindy's not there yet. She's selling harder for sure. And she's selling more. Uh, Shonda Rhimes has the benefit of not selling herself. She is not also an actress, right? She's yeah. not writing things where she also has to be the appealing star, uh, but, you know, an apples-to-apples apples comparison might be Tina Fey. Tina Fey is a beloved hitmaker, even though she maybe isn't that much of a hitmaker, right? Even though uh, Kimmy Schmidt didn't do as well as 30 Rock, and Great News thus far has not done as well as Kimmy Schmidt even. Yeah. The image of Tina Fey is as a hitmaker. And uh, there's a part in Bossy Pants in Tina Fey's book where she sort of thinks about whether or not she should get pregnant and whether if she does, she will put the hundred people who work on her show out of a job, at least temporarily, that kind of thing. But, you know, the show waits around for Tina Fey. So this is a hard one. Uh, it's hard because you want to respect somebody who's like not telling, as you say, you know, who the father might be. And yet... Mindy Kaling is so open about the fact that she would be the kind of person who would want to know, which is hilarious. Uh, and then it's really hard because I, I really found that comment about the production a bit off-putting. I found it a bit surprising as though if she were, I don't know what, of a different like star level or if she were married to another star or something, it would have been about how happy everybody is. This is so wonderful. Uh, but it was about like, but don't worry, she's still going to do all her homework. It was just a really weird tone. So yeah, given the fact that E of NBC Universal sure. broke this story and used this specific language, like basically it's she's pregnant, unexpected surprise, 
no change in production schedule, boom, 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 that that was the immediate detail that was, uh, you know, put out there right at the top of the article as opposed to the usual way that these things are ruled out. Hooray, congratulations. That's right. What are we getting at? What do we think this is about? Well, you know what? What is weird is that it seems like an apology or at the very least an accident, which first of all is not the way we should be referring to any woman's pregnancy. No. It's really exciting that somebody is going to have a next generation. But I also wonder if that's a bit of a deliberate obfuscation of if you were, say, 38 years old and single and not actively dating anybody that we know and certainly not one of the Chris's, uh, and if you did decide to deliberately get pregnant in all the ways that people do, you know, seeking uh, sort of whatever medical attention or whatnot you need to, um, if you're somebody who is a star and a and a writer, often there are clauses in contracts and they say kind of euphemistic things like uh, often actors have to sign things saying they won't Skydiving, yeah, they won't go skydiving. They won't windsurf. They won't ride motorcycles. They won't do those things because they could injure themselves, which in turn could slow up production. Right. And I would just want to interject here. Speaking of slowing up production, we are working in the midst of some kind of construction that's going on outside the studio, which is my house. And we have waited a long time for it to clear up, and it just hasn't. So sometimes you might hear some construction beeping. We're sorry about that. Um, But uh, we promise that uh, we will keep going and focus. There you go. You can hear it in the background right now. This is the reality of our studio uh, holding up production. Um, But we will move forward despite the sound. There's probably a show must go on metaphor there. There we go. Anyway, holding up production. But yeah, actors are obliged, whether or not they sign those contracts, uh, not to engage in activities that would willfully hold up production, right? And ain't nobody going to write a contract saying you can't get pregnant or you can't, you know, whatever, act of God, like divine, uh, what am I trying to say? Like virgin pregnancy. Immaculate conception. Yes, thank you. Whatever you want to talk about there. But if it were true that you were, uh, you know, getting pregnant on your own, like millions of single women, being an example to women who have the money and the means and want to be parents, uh, I can see a world in which that would be a liability, where that could be interpreted as a bit of a breach of contract. Uh, And while I don't know if anybody would actually, you know, go to the mat and sue for damages, again, it looks different for a single woman than if, you know, 18 months after a blissful wedding that was spread across People magazine, then it was like, oh, she's pregnant and she'll be adorably pregnant during the promotion of A Wrinkle in Time or whatever. And listen, we're speculating here. Wildly speculating. Obviously, based on the language of this informal, not official, but kind of official press release announcing Mindy Kaling's pregnancy. But again, there was a three-word quote. If there's no quote, then you don't quote anybody. If there's a longer quote, then you quote. There was a three-word quote. An unexpected surprise. And the reason I guess we're, we're coming to this is because even though this is Hollywood, there is a real world parallel. I have heard so many instances and examples from friends of mine who 
got a new job, and three months after getting the new job, they find out they're pregnant and they have anxiety. Of course they do. They have anxiety about going to their bosses. They haven't even passed the probation period or whatever. This is like a promotion or a new management job, or they've been, they've become the vice president and they're like, literally, and I, 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 I feel sad saying this, but they say about their own pregnancy, oh, fuck the timing. Yeah. Well, and this is the bitch of it, right? Is that I don't know anybody who would say, oh, and the timing was amazing. We are somehow at a place in our society where women who work and love to work think that there's no ideal time to have a child, which is bullshit. I mean, or there's no ideal time to have a child, but how are we thinking about it that way? As opposed to this is amazing. I'm excited. Uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, God bless Sheryl Sandberg, uh, among other things, was telling women uh, a year or so ago that they should have babies in their early 20s so that they could then focus on their careers. Right. Do you see the flaw in this argument? I see. I saw a lot of flaws in, in Lean In. Um, of course. That was one of them. But yes. And she has she has now seen those flaws too. And she's gone back to course correct a little bit. But sure. Yes. She, overall, yes. But who do you know at 22 who's going to be an appropriate partner and parent for the next 25 years? But if we wait, as you say, until a 38-year-old woman is super successful and maybe successful on her own and now making choices about what's in front of her, it's also like, oh, it's an unexpected surprise. Wherein can people be excited about it? I, I just, I find it such a weird, small place where it's like, who gets to just cheer and be like, yeah, we wanted this and now we have it and it's wonderful. Another thing to point out, I should say, is that you and I, uh, I have a kid and you don't have a kid, but we both uh, are kind of born and raised in the Canadian employment system where a year of maternity leave is a built-in benefit that is taken for granted by many of our friends and colleagues. Uh, of course, in many other places, particularly in the United States, that is not the case. Uh, six weeks is much more standard regardless of the kind of job you have. Eight weeks maybe if there's complications. Uh, and then six weeks or eight weeks to a film set is an eternity. You know, you can tape an hour of television these days in six days. Uh, nobody's going to shoot a movie in nine days, but they could if they had to. Uh, so six weeks or eight weeks for recovery, which we're sitting here in Canada thinking is the bare minimum is a massive timeout for, for some, you know, for people when they are in production. So I'm even more stressed about reading this again and going, but there'll be no changes to her production schedule. Yep. And again, in Canada, as you mentioned, that one year maternity leave is for the most part applicable to people who aren't freelancers or self-employed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You, yeah, no, it, uh, living in the freelance life, uh, over here, and no, here. Yeah. No, you don't, uh, you don't get a, a year-long mat leave. That's right. So to be honest, when I read that announcement about Mindy Kaling's um, pregnancy, my first instinct and antenna is always the gossip. So, oh, this is, and who could it be? Chris Pine, whatever. It was you who pointed out to me, hey, this language is a little bit off. It's funky. It's rubbing me the wrong way. I want to unpack this. Because it went straight to, oh, but production schedules won't change. And number one, your first reaction was, 
bullshit. She's carrying a child. She's growing a baby. Then she gets to have the baby. Like, what is this all about? We need to unpack it. Well, on two levels, right? On the one hand, yeah, could we let her fucking recover? I don't, look, I don't know what she has lined up for six weeks after the baby was born. I don't even think they let us know exactly when that's going to be. I think it's very vague in this announcement. But uh, also at the same time, and this is me sort of going back on my own self, also women are not incapable as soon as they get pregnant. You know, you talked about people who get a job and three months in, they learn that they're pregnant and they're all worried. And I'm thinking, yeah, no, that's kind of weird timing. But they also have nine to 10 more months before they're going to be gone. You are not incapable of doing your job just because you have a belly. You are not incapable of doing your job just because your center of gravity is off a little bit. I think we also have a tendency in Hollywood and the associated, you know, sort of tentacles of the industries to start thinking that pregnancy is incapacitating as soon as somebody is less interested in doing like, I don't know, a nude scene because there's a pregnant belly that shouldn't be there. I agree with you. I think too, though, that what a lot of these women are up against and why it's that reaction, oh shit, I just got this job and I'm pregnant is because of course, listen, the system is set up so that this is the very reason the patriarchy uses not to promote women, not to hire women, not to invest in women. They're just going to be gone. That's right. And, you know, at this point, I have to shout out uh, a little tiny show that you may or may not know called Winona Earp. Uh, It is a fantastic show on sci-fi. A friend of the podcast, uh, Emily Andrus, is the showrunner. But the show is notable because uh, the lead actress, Melanie Scrifano, Uh, found out as the second season was going into production that she was pregnant. And the show is notable because they had their gun-slinging, ass-kicking, badass hero, Winona, played by Melanie Scrifano, play pregnant, which is to say she still kicked ass and killed demons and swore and drank. and I don't know about the drinking. Um, (laughs) But she still continued to be all those things, to be the superhero, to be the comic book hero while pregnant. It can be done. You don't suddenly require a fainting couch everywhere that you go. Well, and it can be done after too. You brought up Tina Fey earlier and in Bossy Pants, she talks about after she had her baby, I mean, she literally went right back to work. She had people over at the apartment to write together while the baby was nursing. There was, I I mean, I didn't memorize that passage, but I clearly remember it. I was going to say it made an impact on you. <laughs> so... Um, what she did was she's like, yeah, there's a hundred people counting on me. I had a baby. Okay. Well, I'll just work that into the schedule and we'll get this done. Yeah. There's many, many layers here, as you say. And, you know, the entertainment world is often one of those places where, sorry to be cynical, where, you know, people often wind up having a baby when, oh, they're, you know, when they're having a bit of a break in their work, right? Or sometimes not. Carrie Washington has had two children during the course of Scandal, and we have not blinked uh, because they work around her because Shonda Rhimes is a parent and knows it's important and is trying not to burn out her star. So it can be done. And you better believe that the Carrie Washington, we could, we should dig up the Carrie Washington pregnancy announcements because I bet you they are polar opposite. 
the star of Scandal is going to have a scandalously cute new boy or girl. I'm paraphrasing, I suspect. Uh, anyway, there are many, many uh, issues here. Uh, tell us what you see. Tell us what it read like to you and uh, whether these are situations that you have found a way to navigate in terms of what it's like at work, what it's like after you have a child at work and what you then have to navigate. Uh, and tell me if I'm off base in thinking that it's a bit weird in the way that it was written and whether, you know, this would have been written if it was if it was two people having a baby. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, so this weekend was Comic-Con. Yeah. And I mean, there's all kinds of superhero stories, all kinds of Ben Affleck stories. I think Ben Affleck might come out of Comic-Con a big loser. We'll get to him another time. Um, but Comic-Con kicked off on Thursday with, uh, among others, Will Smith. Right. And Will Smith was there with Netflix for uh, a big budget movie that will be airing on Netflix in December. It's called Bright. Mm -hmm. It is sci-fi, kind of superhero-y. Uh, the story is not important. What we're getting at here is that Will Smith is really – um, pumping hard for Netflix. And it started at the Cannes Film Festival when he was a juror. He was a member of the jury. And there was a lot of controversy before Cannes started and at the beginning of Cannes because the festival is having a fight with Netflix about whether or not films can be screened in competition that aren't played in theaters. Basically, they're saying you've got to go into a movie theater for you to be considered a real, real movie and it seemed to polarize Hollywood talent on two sides. There were some directors who are purists and they're like, a movie is only when you go into the theater and it's played on that big screen and you enjoy that special experience. And there are some people who are like, a film is a film. And some people like watching it in their basement on the TV. Uh, it is still the film medium. It's still cinematic. Um, and it's still worthwhile. Um, Given that conversation, which is getting louder and louder, Will Smith went to Comic-Con with David Ayers uh, for Bright and Netflix and once again crusaded or pretty much like, you know, pounded it out for Netflix. Um, what do we think of that? Because he's like, listen, Will Smith is a movie star. So it's so interesting that you say that. Uh, he's a movie star. The quote that got me most excited from this story originally was Will Smith saying, quote, you almost can't make new movie stars anymore, uh, in reference to sort of the way the business has changed since he was coming up in it and so forth. 
yeah, he's a huge movie star for sure. Uh, but what we sort of talk about when we talk about Netflix is what stars, creators, et cetera, gain when they go there, right? Like I, I, I hear the argument of people who say a film is a film and I want to go and see a film and it should be made, you know, it's celluloid and the whole thing. And those same people are like bitter every time like there's a new camera change. Like it's not as good as eight millimeter. Um, but what I think you, you missed in the conversation is, and when I say you, I mean us, Netflix is a really great creative home. So here is, there's a really interesting quote here. Uh, there was a question uh, that was uh, asked uh, by Vulture at Comic-Con. Somebody says, had Ayer made Bright at a big movie studio, how much would he have had to compromise his vision for it? And in the article, Will Smith covers his microphone objection, Your Honor, I'm not going to have my client answer that. So by the way, he's still a movie star because that's what he's bringing to the stage, right? Like, yeah. can we just propose that a movie star is a movie star 24-7? Yes. Like, that was not scripted for him. You perform when you even don't have a script. That's right. But uh, he's able to be Will Smith the product, right? Anyway, uh, then Air goes on to explain and sort of pussyfoot around the fact that, you know, you would not be allowed to make the movie that you want to at a big studio. Basically... Netflix doesn't develop. This is a known thing. You walk into Netflix with a project with as much as you have a, a script or an idea or a cast or whatever, uh, hopefully all of the above, and they either say yes or no. And if they say yes, you go make your movie and they put it on. Um, you go make your show and they put it on. They don't really, uh, they give notes obviously, but they're not going to develop six versions of it with you and kind of massage it and see what you think and get their fingers in it. And maybe what we need is more of a girl or more of a, an action angle or whatever. You make what you make. And so let me just back this up because I find this fascinating when you talk about it with me because, of course, you, you are writing in the business. You're pitching all the time. Sure. And when you're working on the shows and the scripts that you're working on, when you say notes, it's a little bit of interference, Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, call it course correction, right? And it's expected course correction. Depending on the structure of your power source, you are always sending every version of things, your scripts, uh, your outlines before then, your casting choices up to basically the people with the money. And this is film and television. That's right. So in television, it works the same way where, yeah, you... In the most simple terms, you write an episode, you send it to the network, they come back with their notes, the writer's room is like, fuck, what don't they get about this? And then you have to try and see if you can compromise your vision in the narrative with the suits and the assholes who are sending you the notes. Well, look, that's the cynical way of looking at it. Right. Um, and the other way of looking at it, and this is something that honestly good writers really do try to do, is go, okay, they don't like that scene okay, well, that sucks, but okay, it means there's something in there they're not getting. So how do we massage what that is so that they get it more? What is it that they're really reacting to? Uh, and I don't, wanna, I don't want to imply that Netflix doesn't give notes on scripts uh, or that they don't you know, weigh in on things that are in production, but there's a difference between weighing in in production when the train is kind of moving and 
the development, which is you often hear about scripts in turnaround or directors leaving movies over creative differences or et cetera. You and I were talking about Edgar Wright a couple of weeks ago who left Ant-Man. And these are more, if you do what we say, then maybe we'll make your movie. Uh, And again, these are the people with the money. Uh, The studios and networks uh, are entitled to say this. But this is what the difference is, is that Netflix comes in and says either yes or no. And if it's yes, here's your pile of money. And they will still give you notes. Of course, they're still going to kind of have an opinion on what you do. But it's not holding the sword of Damocles over your head of maybe we'll do it if you do what we like. And then it also uh, matters post-production as well or when you're in post. Because, for example, um, another... Netflix director who sang Netflix's praises in Cannes especially was Boon Jong-ho. Mm-hmm. Boon Jong-ho's Okja uh, just premiered on Netflix within the last month or so. It's quite critically acclaimed. And uh, Boon Jong-ho's previous experience or one of his previous experiences was Snowpiercer. And there were all kinds of reports about, for example, Harvey Weinstein wanting a different version of the film or editing it to the point where Boon Jong-ho was like, this is not really the vision that I had. And this is, I mean, it's a really pretentious word. It's become one, but Boon Jong-ho is one of those directors who's also an auteur, right? And sure. (laughs) And so he was basically like, after that experience, going to Netflix was so freeing because I cut the version of the film that I wanted to cut. Right. And, you know, he cut the version he wanted to cut, and then they get to see it as a whole, right? I think what most people in the industry would say, whether they're making a short film or, you know, Snowpiercer, right? Or, you know, what's the, I don't know, Beauty and the Beast, is often it's death of a thousand cuts. Often it is, and a thousand cuts literally here, right? Often it's um, not, you called it interference at one point, and it's like, a million little, a million different little nudges that nudge your project that when they're all said and done, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I recognize it anymore. For uh, for him to say, oh, I cut the movie I want to cut, it's like even if later on you have creative discussions and you take out 25 minutes from the middle or whatnot, you got to make the thing you want to make and then see it and then fix it. And that is, it seems so elementary, but it's kind of rare, Yeah. How long will it last? So right now we're in this golden stage of Netflix where there is some input, but for the most part, simply, there's not that much, you know, it isn't as hands-on. Not early. It's not hands-on. It's not early development. That's right. So how long before they do develop a development department? Well… It's an interesting question because what Netflix has done on the TV side recently is something they've never done before, and that is they've started canceling, right? They canceled Sense8. They canceled Girl Boss. Girl Boss. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of a thing Netflix doesn't cancel, especially not, you know, Netflix originals, right? It, it, so they've started to indicate that after a period of just consuming, like buying all the things that they want to air and just like throwing it up there and seeing what happens, that now they're starting to cut their losses a little bit. So that is their reform right now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether uh, not being development is pretty like 
firm in their ethos right now. So let's see. Let's see how this does. I guess the next question is, as they fight the battles of are you eligible for awards if it if it broadcasts on Netflix or whatnot, uh, I would suspect that that's what's going to make there be more hoops, right? If this is ineligible, if Okja and other things are ineligible for uh, the accolades that they should start to get, then there's going to be some lip service paid to okay, well, let's pretend that we're going to broadcast it somewhere, a Netflix original cinema or similar, to obey the letter of the law. And so maybe there's some interference in that way, but I don't know. It's working so far. It is, but I do sense that talent is straddling still, obviously. I mean, Will Smith said himself um, at Comic-Con, he was like, hey, you know, I love Netflix. This was a great experience. And someone said to him, but hey, Christopher Nolan, who had Dunkirk come out this weekend, Christopher Nolan is one of those auteurs who's like, no, 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 no Netflix. I like the film. I like the theatrical thing. I like the whatever, whatever. And what do you think of that, Will? And he was like, hey, hey, I'm not going to say anything bad about Christopher Nolan because I still want to work with him. Of course he's not. And so should he. And neither should anybody have to choose. Like, it's just two different methods. And frankly, actors don't, well, they do run into it once they start developing their own projects, right? They shouldn't have to choose, uh, but also Christopher Nolan just has the aura of somebody who's going to say, fuck you and walk away, which is an incredibly effective tool to have. It's when you want to work with a studio, a network, or whatever so much that you bend to all of their whims and wills so much that you wind up with something that doesn't look like what you walked in with. Uh, so... Yeah, I think we still need the pushback. I still, I think you still need, and you also need the notes because they make it better sometimes. Like, look, I'm, I'm don't know anything about Girl Boss, but like maybe that show could have used some notes, you know, maybe some development, maybe that would have changed some things. I heard it did need some notes. So this is my point, you know, it, this is not an automatically golden way to get things that are perfect up on Netflix. It is a way to get things that are a more pure artist vision, and that is sometimes great, and sometimes we'll see. So, you know, we always talk about the intense debate over what we're going to talk about on the show uh, and the sort of process we go through of eliminating, and then there are the letters that we get. We've talked before about the letters that we love to get. Here is one that is so impassioned uh, <laughs> that the letter writer addresses not just you and I, but she throws everything at the wall. She even throws Yasik in the mix. Yeah. She addressed... Lainey, Duanna, Yasik, I cannot thank you enough for the yeah, 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 stroking our ego. Uh, uh-huh. And um, as a native Quebecois, I have always, despite all logic and reason, loved Celine Dion. To many of us, she is our Tante Celine. Uh, and what follows is one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six... <laughs> paragraphs entreating us, uh, plus a postscript, uh, entreating us to discuss Celine and what she, this is Jen writing to us, and what she sees as phase one and phase two of Celine Dion. And what's most, uh, uh, pardon me, phase one and phase two of post-Renee Celine Dion. Right. And what's most hilarious to me about this is not the begging, is not the like, you know, stacking the deck with everybody's name in here. What kills me is that the idea that she thought that she had to plead 
for us to talk about yeah. Celine? Like as if as if you had to ask. We are dying to talk about her at all points, right? <laughs> Nobody has to convince us to talk about Celine. Two points here though. Uh, for those who are for those of you listening who are not Francophone, Tante Celine is Aunt Celine. Yes, thank you. Yes. Um, and number two, you do not have to um, include Yasik in this. Yasik has no editorial say in show your work. <laughs> he is the engineer. Uh, although I should say, you know, he was on your side. He thought we should talk about Celine Dion. So for what it's worth. He, oh, he tries to offer his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, Tante Celine. Yeah. Uh, I just, just to outline quickly Jen's phases, uh, she says phase one uh, of the rebrand, uh, I'm particularly interested in the moves that she and her team are currently making in their work as related to Celine rebranding after Renee's death. Phase one, she says, you know, she presented herself as the ultimate survivor by performing The Show Must Go On. Uh, soon after, her team was quick to commercialize the concept of the show must go on. Can even- I interject here, though? Of course. I actually don't think it began with the show must go on. Not that I want to say that there was anything strategic or calculated about this, but I actually think that where it began was the eight hours that she spent standing up at the funeral <gasps> for Renee. <gasps> And I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but well, how many other widows do you know in the public eye would have stood in the church, in the cathedral, for eight hours greeting every single person who came in personally to the point where, like, she was exhausted and she was like, no, I have to do this. <laughs> but also, like... <laughs> And, and listen, I'm not saying it was calculated or strategic. I am saying that that was part of her, but it added to the lore. No, I know. But, but then so many things in your, just your last sentence are lore. For example, you know that she stood for eight hours at the funeral. Because, I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. But when you wonder why Canadians are strange and when you wonder why we feel this way and what is happening, you need to know that Renee Angelil's funeral was broadcast. Yes. So everybody knew that she was greeting each and every attendee for eight hours. Oh, no. Time. Like, we get to work. There she was standing there. Uh, I needed to go pee at 10 o'clock. There she was standing there. I needed to go get to the photocopier. There she was standing there. Like, every time I walked past the television, she was standing there in literally the most elegant, beautiful face veil. Um, yeah, her mantilla or whatnot. Yeah. But again, uh, what's amazing about that is, like, there's no doubt that she is in mourning. There's no like trying to dab away the tears. Oh, for the no, 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 no. Right? Nobody's like, doubting the legitimacy and authenticity of her sorrow. Like uh, <laughs> no one. You know, there's a word that I should have known before now, but that has really come to be, uh, I don't want to say performative in a pejorative way, but God, it was a performative grief. She was performing it for us so that we could grieve with her. Yes, one, 100%. Like, it was an act of generosity. <laughs> no, 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 it was an act of generosity. Yes. She was like, I, and I, I mean this in the most, again, respectful way. She actually, I feel like she knew we had to see that. It was a sharing. Except. Except that, of course, Renee meant more to her than he ever meant to us, right? Like, this is the only part yes. of the thing. Uh, and this is a gross comparison, but I think you'll understand that, you know, 
after university, I was talking with this girl that I'd known in school and we were hanging out and having a good time. And I was like, I thought, like, I don't get, like, I thought you didn't like me. Like, you always were kind of weird. And she was like, oh, no, we didn't like your boyfriend. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. He was no longer the boyfriend at the time. Again, it's not that anybody didn't like Renee Angelil. Yeah. But the reason we love Celine is not because of him. No. So Jen goes on to explain uh, phase one, and she takes it through last year's concert tour that passed through Montreal last summer. Of note, she did not perform All By Myself, one of her arguably biggest hits in her concert repertoire. <laughs> Could this be because it made her come off as way too lonely, way too sad, not sufficiently empowered? Jen, are you submitting this for a thesis? <laughs> and then she goes on. And now, in phase two of the branding, she's leaning deeply into her quirks and making it all about her. What's the strategy? What's the angle? And why are we as pop culture consumers applauding this behavior? Why now? Um, yeah, and so that's where we are now. The Phase two, I guess? Phase two, her quirks. I mean, it seems like weekly now, uh, I will get an early morning email from you <laughs> that... <laughs> demands, usually the only thing in the email other than a link is watch the whole thing. Or sometimes it will say, watch all of them. <laughs> Click through to all. <laughs> or sometimes it'll be like, why haven't you talked to me about Celine in three days? Oh yeah, we did have that. Like it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, uh, almost like a, a lover's tiff where you're like, I don't understand why we haven't talked about her. Yeah. Um, She's so spectacular right now. Oh, she's funny. She's fun. She's, I'm going to say it. I'm going to go ahead and say it's, she's sexy in oh, a way yeah. that she, but she never was sexy before. Never. She, Ever. No. I mean, it was, and when she tried to be sexy, she was trying to be sexy and as was, a joke. Yeah, but it was awkward and weird. Yes. She had a lot of like bouffant hairdos for a yes. long time. Like, why is she now so free? Dot, dot, dot. Yep. Sorry, I feel that Celine is in um, phase two and a half, if we will, or I don't know. I, I, I feel strongly that Celine is, you know, possibly being with her second man ever, or maybe second through seventh. I don't know her life. I have no idea what's going on. I don't think there's a particular person. But she's acting like a woman who has discovered a new side of herself, yes? And I also think that she's acting like a woman who's truly free to love herself. I think Interesting. That, right? And this is all kinds of like self-help book and like, you love yourself. I'm not trying to be, you know, find your best self here. What I'm saying is that you use the word performative. Mm -hmm. And when Celine was with Renee… The performance was of doting and dutiful wife. Right. And then the babies came and we needed to see Celine and Le Miracle, you know. the, the you, and Remember how… The miracle, guys. <laughs> um, and she would sing about the beauty of love and what was the song that came out right after like Renee Charles was born? Um, anyway, whatever. We, we don't need to go into her catalog. But that was the performance of being a mother. But she's never performed that woman, I am woman, I, you know, I love myself. No, and I would even 
argue that she didn't really perform being a mother that much, right? Like she was devoted to Renee until the very end. Yes. But she was not, she did not fill her interviews, not that she did many, with dozens of anecdotes about her adorable children or how close she is to them and how they all like. No, there were no stroller shots, no. for example. But it oh, was about please. family. Yeah, fa- yeah family. That but performance was. The patriarch, right? Correct. Is at the top of the family. It's very old fashioned. And now it's new fashioned. Yes. It's totally different. And God, it's so refreshing and exciting. It's the power of self love. It's like watching her Benjamin Button. Like, if yes. you uh, let's get gross for a second. How old was she when she met Renee? Young. How old was she when it allegedly was all kosher and fine? Like 21? Maybe even younger? So by all accounts, like if, if, if that's the case and your whole life is shaped by this one person and like I'm talking about an old boyfriend I had in university and that's already like, well, I should, uh, you know, it was several, several experiences of my life ago. She's almost like a teenager at this point. She is... She's literally having, like, yeah, life after your first boyfriend. It's just that it took her about 40 years to have life after your first boyfriend. Remember that freedom? Yes. You know what it is? Do you remember in My So-Called Life, there's that episode where Angela says, uh, you know, after all the time moping about Jordan, then suddenly one day I was over him. I didn't feel it anymore. And she dances around her bedroom to uh, the Violent Femmes, I think, or uh, to Blister in the Sun. Yes. It's like that. It's like that. Celine Dion is on a year-long trip of dancing around to blister in the sun everywhere that she goes. In couture. In couture. And it's amazing. On the couture tip, if this means nothing to you, if you're like, get away from Celine Dion, could we get back to talking about like sci-fi heroes or comic books or whatnot? Uh, Site manager Emily is a huge follower of Tom Lenk. Tom was an actor on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but he also has a really amazing Instagram where he recreates celebrity looks, like iconic celebrity looks. He's on a real Celine tip right now. Uh, He recreated the red leather jacket that she was wearing with solo cups. Um, We will link to it. It is well worth your time, and you can feel like you're up on the Celine trip. It's a delight. But we should also say before we wrap up the phase one and phase two discussion of Celine Dion that this will not be the standalone Celine Dion discussion. Uh, We will come back to Celine. I will force Celine into the Show Your Work podcast if I have to. I'm seeing Duanna furring her brows for some reason, like she's going to fight me on this. I I don't understand why. I just just don't want to like leave juicy questions till later. Do you think she's having sex? Yes. Oh my God, that's wait, amazing. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I, do, can, should we be talking about tonsilline like this? <laughs> I mean, she, I, would, she would wag a very like sassy finger at you and then sort of, I don't know, saying who let the dogs out? I don't know. I feel like she's having sex with herself. That's not the same thing. No, you no. You can't back off your answer. No, no, no. I, that is my answer. Like I actually feel like she has to pre-Samantha before Samantha-ing. Like, I don't, listen, I don't want to visualize her like this either, but I feel like she is going through back issues of Cosmopolitan. (laughs) 
<laughs> and picking up tips. And yet, I feel like she is maybe going to be a decent judge of character of the the the, the courtiers who come to call. I don't feel like it's a... Uh, I don't know. It's not a J-Lo situation. No, but because I don't think that she can take a lover. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I, don't... <laughs> I don't think she can. <laughs> Listen, we're talking about our aunt. Like, this is what's so weird. I well, don't what's... think she can take a lover until she knows what she needs from the lover. I don't know if I don't know if she knows that stuff exists. Like, like I'm not what, saying she's on you porn or anything. No, but like for what it's worth, if we are doing visualization exercises, I get about as far as Celine being fed grapes and then I'm out. Like it's <laughs> Yes. Like like to go back to JLo, I can picture JLo in everything. Sure. Beyond grapes. Yeah, she wants you to. I I stop at grapes as Celine too, which is why I'm just saying she's I think she's in a period of discovery. All right. Um, you look like you have the face on of like figure one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, cause it's so crass to talk about like the, the, you know, I, I want to believe that Celine is running around Paris having love affairs. You started this. You uh, yeah. started it by saying, do we think we, she's having sex? Right. Don't put this on me. Well, but the, okay. There's having sex in the most, uh, you know, in the, this is an activity I'm embarking in stage. And then there's like, oh, are there line drawings on page 74? <laughs> okay. Anyway, my point is I do not think Celine has taken a lover. Okay. Or lovers. I do not think there are multiples in this conversation. Maybe in a year. Uh, I, but right now I feel like Celine is focused on loving Celine. If I were a fanfic person, I would be writing the the story of the hopeful the hopeful courtiers right now because I cannot imagine the people who seek to to uh, the, who seek to escort her down into phase three. I can't even picture who that would be. I can't wait to find out. I can't. But can who would it be? Like it would have to be like you'd have to be a count. I assume. I assume it's like Aristotle. a viscount or whatever, right? Yeah, I do assume it's Aristotle Onassis or similar, right? Like it's it's yeah. You're going to have to literally have several capes in your closet in <laughs> regular use. And like a chateau. Yeah. No, uh, several. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And old, old, old money. But also. Like not like, a Silicon Valley billionaire. Maybe. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a, a dalliance there. Oh my God. If she is with like a 27-year-old Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, that would really make my life. <laughs> um, but aren't we the people who said she would never love again? She may never love again. That doesn't mean she can't have fun again. I mean, it, 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 there will never be another love like that. She will never stand for eight hours <laughs> greeting each and every mourner. Okay. Well, I, we, we, we're not, and listen, we're not laughing at her sorrow. We are enjoying and appreciating the spectacle. As she would want and does want. This is not a woman, for all our jokes, who is not self-aware. This is not somebody who doesn't know how it all looks. She knows how it all looks. She knows who we are and that we're watching her live this part of her life. She's delighted. We're delighted. So she should be. I'm in. 
You know, I really thought, though, that when you were talking about Cosmo, that you were making a really deft uh, segue, because you've really been working on the segues recently. I'm trying. trying. I'm impressed. I really am. Uh, But we are talking this week, do we need to care about, of course, is, as promised, uh, the bold type, the link to Cosmo being that it is uh, inspired by the life of Editor-in-Chief Joanna Coles, uh, who you have seen on reality TV. She's been a guest judge on Project Runway. She was on, uh, there was a show called So Cosmo for a while there. She she shows up with an impeccable blonde bob and a British accent. Like, she's a person you know. So a lot of people are talking about this show. I mean, I, on all the sites that we visit for industry commentary, um, people are like, this is the new feminist show that we all need. You know, those titles, like, this is the show we deserve. This is the show of its time. So the bold type, you were on me. Mm-hmm. You were like, you got to watch Have You Started? And I was like, I don't know where to find it. Right. Uh, and the show is on Freeform or uh, on ABC Spark if you're in Canada. Uh, and it is, yeah, I was on you because I had been on it since, uh, I read the pilot when it was called Issues. They work at a magazine, guys. Issues. Uh, slash the bold type. I get it. I may have liked the first one better. Uh, and it was a great pilot. It read as a great pilot, but that doesn't always mean it's going to turn into a great show. It was a great show. Uh, you know, you live texted me throughout last night, which is always the sign of a good show for you. Were you surprised at how much you liked? I was surprised for two reasons. Number one, when I was like, where do I watch it? I don't know where to, I, do I get it? You were like, yeah, Freeform, you know, ABC. And then I was like, ABC, what? And I started going through my television dial and it's on the channel in Canada that I always associated with ABC Family. Right. In Canada, it's called ABC Spark. Right. And I didn't think that you'd be telling me to watch a show on like ABC Family in Canada Spark. Well, you know, let's back up. So ABC Family rebranded as Freeform, uh, and that was a real effort to grow up a little. But, uh, you know, here comes the uh, the workers, guys. They never stop. The, the construction crew is back. We even have the uh, flashing lights in our studio here. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, would, I think uh, the shows often deal with cool stuff, but just in a bright, glossy way. Uh, you can respectfully spend time on Switched at Birth or The Fosters uh, and, you know, feel good about it. But The Bold Type is a, a freeform original, if you will. It was developed when it was already freeform. Uh, the creator is a writer from Parenthood, uh, Sarah Watson. Uh, so there's that kind of pedigree going on. You know, the people who like things to be... Like, like, you know, things to be great, like stories to go well, but have that sort of sardonic tone that, that gives it some edge. So, yeah, there's, there's edge aplenty. And then the second thing that surprised me was the pilot was good within 10 minutes. Yeah. So in the past, one of the things, a, the, a commonly repeated phrase that you have said to me is, watch the first two, or you have to get to three. Mm-hmm. And this pilot, within 10 minutes, I was like, all right, I'm in. It's so interesting that you say that because there was an article recently about how people don't have time anymore to skip the pilot or to watch the first three and then it gets really going or whatnot. That uh, smaller orders, first of all, mean that shows have to be better sooner because uh, you only have 10, you got to make them good. 
And there's too much TV. There's peak TV is peak TV. You don't have time to wait around. So I'm glad the pilot was good. But yeah, I think that's a function of 2017. Yeah, it, it was. it's good right away. I mean, I think even 10 minutes is a little bit too much of, uh, I don't know, like I'm not being, I'm not being kind enough because it, really within five, I was right in. I love the three characters. Um, oftentimes I find in a show that is supposed to spread weight equally, I mean, I guess in theory, um, the main character, Jane, is the main character, but Really, all three, there's not a dud among them. Nope. And you buy who they are. One of the things I liked, we're burying the lead and saying that the show is, if you couldn't guess, overtly about work and overtly about working at Scarlet, which is a Cosmo-type magazine. Uh, but I really like that the three main characters, they don't all have the same job. They're not all three of them wanting to be writers or something similar. Not in the same department. They want different things, and they're at different levels, which I thought was really, really great. Uh, when you are friends who work together, uh, you know, you don't all get magic promotions all at the same time. So I thought it was really great that one is, you know, two steps up the ladder from one of her friends. I found that really smart and effective. That, and you mentioned this show is all about work. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about work challenges, how to meet a deadline, how to choose the department that you want to work in. What if you get offered a job in a certain department, that's not your thing, but you want the paycheck. And they kind of throw you for a loop within the first few minutes because you think there's going to be a, a bitch boss. Yep. You think there's going to be a Miranda Priestley. This is a fashion and lifestyle magazine. You think that some, you know, well-dressed, uh, clipped-toned woman is going to walk in and undress everybody and let you know who's boss. And then, well, I mean, I don't think this is spoiling it because you learn this really right in the first half of the first pilot. That's not it. Yeah. In fact, there are several women who come on stage through the first episode or two and you're like, maybe this is going to be the bitch boss. And they don't turn out to be, which is kind of great. Instead, what you get is mentorship. Yeah. So not only are we exploring work and work issues and young women at work, but we're also getting mentor characters. And, you know, I've read interviews with the creator and with the, uh, with the writers where they say this is a bit... It's a bit of friendship porn. It's maybe even a bit of mentorship porn for things to go this well, that, you know. Uh, but it's not, it doesn't mean that it's a fairy tale. There's a lot of bumps along the way. There's a lot of very realistic things. And there's a lot of our characters being pretty imperfect, which I'm really excited about because that's what makes it feel real when you do a stupid thing at work and then you know you did. And then through the grace of your friends and some hard work, you sort of slough it off. And really, really contemporary. Super contemporary. Um, I think that this is of the now, the issues that they're dealing with, not only the political and social issues that they're dealing with in the first episode, we're already looking at diversity and gender fluidity. In the second episode, we're talking about sex. We're talking about uh, gender differences in journalism. I mean- uh, We're maligning goop. We're yes, we're maligning goop in the second episode. So it's contemporary in that way and it's social and political issues, but it's also contemporary about who these young women are, the technology they use, the language they use, the way that they live together, the way that they date. 
the way that they bitch, the way that they gossip. The student loans that they have. This is the first show I have seen where somebody talks about how her financial problems are affecting her work, uh, which I found really, that's contemporary. That's something that we haven't seen before and that feels real fresh and real real. So uh, do you need to care about it? Resounding yes, I say. Resounding yes from me. Um, my one complaint. Oh. And this is maybe not a complaint. But my one complaint is I'm so used to having it all in a bundle. Oh. And now there are like the three of the shows that I've loved the most all season happen to be shows about women, Big Little Lies, The Handmaid's Tale, and now The Bold Type are all like the weekly version and not the bundled. Here is a complete season. Enjoy. Yeah. And Game of Thrones while you're up, you know. And now Insecure. Yeah. So welcome back to Week by Week. Uh, I was thinking actually that podcasts train us for that in a way and that the people talking about not being able to keep up with how many podcasts there are is because you just have to listen to something else while you're waiting for your podcast. Yeah. Uh, So if that's the case for us, see that segue, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Keep sending us your emails and your thoughts and your arguments and all the things that you care about. We want to hear them. We want to hear your work stories. Thank you so much for caring about our work and listening to us talk about work. Check us out on Google Play and iTunes. Please leave your comments. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much and see you next time. Bye. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.